Welcome to the Shakespeare Underground, a podcast exploring the works and life of William Shakespeare. I'm Jennifer Newton, and this is episode three, Midsummer Monsieur, The French Marriage Crisis and a Midsummer Night's Dream. The Shakespeare Underground is dedicated to exploring the fascinating and controversial world of the Shakespeare authorship debate. In each episode, we look at a different aspect of why it is that people question the attribution of the plays and poems that we know as the Shakespeare canon. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Earl Showerman on the topic of political allegory in Shakespeare, specifically the French court through the eyes of an English playwright. While we'll be touching on a few other works, we'll primarily be discussing A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of Shakespeare's most performed plays. A Midsummer Night's Dream is probably best known for Puck and the Fairy World, for the setting of an enchanted wood at night, and for the donkey-headed bottom, one of Shakespeare's most iconic and beloved characters. We'll be looking at how this familiar play can take on new meanings and even add some dimension to the historical record when we consider the possibility that it may contain references to actual characters and events of the recent past. To investigate this possibility, in today's podcast, we'll be traveling back in time to the Elizabethan court of the 1570s and 1580s. This is a time when England was still recovering from the religious upheavals under Henry VIII and Bloody Mary Tudor. By 1570, things had stabilized a bit. England had been Protestant again under Elizabeth for more than a decade, but the country was surrounded by powerful Catholic monarchies like Spain and France. And in this precarious situation, Queen Elizabeth and her advisors found an ingenious way to stave off direct conflict with these powerful Catholic nations. And the very colorful story of how they did this may be showing up as exquisite satire in A Midsummer Night's Dream. We'll also be looking at why talking about this falls outside the realm of traditional Shakespeare scholarship. Some really wonderful stuff we'll be covering today. I want to apologize for the poor sound quality of some portions of the interview. There were some technical problems, but the content is so compelling that I hope you'll hardly notice. About our guest today, Earl Showerman is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Michigan Medical School. He practiced emergency medicine in Oregon for over 30 years. After retiring from medicine, he enrolled at Southern Oregon University to study Shakespeare and pursue his decades-long love affair with the authorship question. He's currently president of the Shakespeare Fellowship and a longtime patron of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. Dr. Showerman's research has included a re-examination of the Greek literary sources and allegorical elements in the works of Shakespeare. Welcome, Earl. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So to start off, what got you interested in the Shakespeare authorship question? Well, in 1985, I read a review of Charlton Ogburn's Mysterious William Shakespeare. It was reviewed in Harvard Magazine, and I purchased it because I was curious, having lived in Ashland since 74, this was very new information and rather exciting, and it turns out to be exactly that. It was not more than a few years after that that the Frontline program on the Shakespeare authorship question was produced, which is an outstanding summary of the question with interviews of Shakespeare scholars. And then through the 90s, as I learned more about this through reading other books, say Alias Shakespeare and then Mark Anderson's wonderful book in 2005. So gradually over a period of time, I just kept reading more and more. It's sort of like it gradually opened up. 
was underlined over and over again by the experience of going to the theater in Ashland to see the Oregon Shakespeare Festival productions, which were immensely enriched having the knowledge that goes with understanding something about the alternative author. Well, I'm very excited about today to hear all about the French marriage crisis and its relationship to A Midsummer Night's Dream. So what was it that got you looking into references to the French court in Shakespeare? Well, this past year, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has been producing Measure for Measure and Love's Letters Lost, and research by both French and English scholars have identified political allegories in both those plays which were pertinent to the French court in the early 1580s. But Midsummer Night's Dream is also an allegory involving one of the central characters of the French court at exactly the same time. So these actually form a bit of a trilogy of allegories on the French court. Today we'll be talking primarily about A Midsummer Night's Dream because the strength of that allegorical context is very powerful and has been recognized for almost 100 years. Oh, really? So why is the idea so obscure? It's certainly not something I've seen discussed in any edition of the play. Well, you will not find commentaries on the French marriage crisis in interpretive texts about Midsummer Night's Dream, except in perhaps a few rare editions. Eva Turner-Clark in 1930 published a book, Hidden Illusions in Shakespeare, in which she did identify characters within A Midsummer Night's Dream and the Duke of Alençon's entourage that were pertinent to making this argument. But greater research has occurred in the last 40 years. Marion Taylor published a book called Bottom Thou Art Translated Political Allegory in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is really the definitive work in this regard. And more recently, Roger Stripmatter has published an article in the Oxfordian reviewing Marion Taylor's earlier work. So I think that we have a long history of understanding how this connection might actually be pertinent. And we'll have links to those books and that article on the website at theshakespeareunderground.com. Well, let's get to it. Tell us all about political allegory in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Excellent. So Shakespeare's play is a farcical satire on political events that were occurring in the late 1570s and early 1580s at the English court and pertains to the Duke of Alençon, the youngest son of Catherine de' Medici and Henry II of France. His older brother, Henry III, was king of France at the time, but he was engaged in negotiations as ambassadors with the court of Elizabeth for almost 12 years over an extended period of time, from 1571 to 1583 until his death when he was the only and significant final suitor to the hand of Queen Elizabeth. So Alan was the final suitor to vie for the hand of Queen Elizabeth, but not the only one. Well, Queen Elizabeth was involved in numerous courtships, and the courtship of Queen Elizabeth was best described by Martin Hume in a seminal edition published about 100 years ago, and he recounts as the long history of the negotiations with various monarchs and dukes around Europe, including Archduke of Charles of Austria, the King of Sweden, even Ivan the Terrible was one of the suitors to the hand of Queen Elizabeth. Ivan the Terrible was almost the King of England? Can't imagine how she passed on that opportunity. And, uh, Henry III of France was offered early on, and then the, finally the Duke of Alençon. So there was a protracted series of negotiations. Alençon being the final candidate, and the only one to actually come to England, albeit secretly, uh, without a passport, against the will of his brother, the King of France. In 1578, 79, and 81, he snuck into England on three different occasions to visit the Queen. Really? So even though the courtship was being officially brokered, he still had to sneak in to see the Queen in person? 
Tell us a little more about these visits. Sure. The first trip was in 1579, and he could not be acknowledged at court when he did arrive, but as soon as he arrived, the ambassador alerted the queen, and he wanted to come immediately to see her, but she said, no, no, you take a day, take a rest, and then come and see me tomorrow. Well, she held a celebration, but he could not appear, of course, at court. He was there secretly, so he hid behind the dais. And the queen would look to him while she was dancing from time to time. Everyone knew he was there, but he could not make a public appearance. So there's that quality about their visits. That is ridiculous. So they met several times in person. What was their relationship like? She was enchanted by Alençon and Alençon's ambassador, Jean de Sénier, who both were well-received at court by Elizabeth, but much resented by certain members of the Elizabethan court. Then not everyone was in agreement on his enchanting qualities. Sounds like there was a fair amount of tension at court around the courtship. How did that dynamic play out? There was really a period of factional rule in the Elizabethan times, and in one faction was kind of the war faction led by the Earl of Leicester and Francis Walsingham, and Philip Sidney was the nephew of Leicester, and they were opposed to the Alençon match, whereas Lord Burley and the Earl of Sussex were very much in favor of the Alençon match. And there's a curious war of allegorical productions that were put on in the late 1570s and the early 1580s. Whether you were opposed or supported the Alençon match, there were competing allegorical productions produced by the Earl of Leicester and the Earl of Sussex trying to convince Elizabeth to either marry or not marry the French Duke. So members of the court were actually staging plays in front of Queen Elizabeth that were either supporting or opposing the French marriage. They were basically propagandizing the queen? Right. What would be an example of one of these? So Philip Sidney wrote The Four Foster Children of Desire. It was performed before 400 French ambassadors who would come to England to negotiate the wedding contract. And it was an overt message that the queen's virginity and the sanctity and her chastity could not be superseded by the French man's suit. And so his courtship had profound implications right across the English court. The Earl of Leicester, for instance, was so distressed by Jean de Semier's presence and his influence on the Queen, including the reference that Leicester made that Semier used love potions on the Queen to turn her in favor of the French Duke. He actually attempted to have Semier assassinated on three different occasions. All of them failed. Wow, Simier is giving love potions to Queen Elizabeth, and Lester is trying to poison Simier. This story pretty much has everything. Just a side note here, Lester, the Earl of Lester, is also known as Robert Dudley. So that's Robert, or Robin, the Queen's longtime favorite, trying to poison three times the French ambassador. That's right. So this was the biggest hot potato in the English court during that period of time, in the early 1580s in particular, when the negotiations became very serious. Okay, so love potions, attempted assassination, a war of allegorical productions. This is kind of crazy. What was Elizabeth up to here? Elizabeth was playing this like a master juggler. 
This is part of the end game of a long negotiation that she had been carrying on with the various monarchs around Europe, basically to buy time, to triangulate between Spain and France and keep them from an alliance against her, of course, because that was the period of time in which they were ramping up the conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics, and Mary Queen of Scots was a direct threat right up into the late 1580s when she was finally executed for a conspiracy and treason. So there was a very intense period of time in which England was basically buying time, which was Lord Burley's policy. Finally, in the mid-1580s, it became clear that England would be drawn into the war in the Low Countries, but this was the preview leading up to the launching of the Spanish Armada against England in 1588. So then really these 12 years of ambassador meetings, illicit visits, dramatic and melodramatic attempts to influence the Queen, and all that ornate public flirtation, all this stuff was really pretty much just a policy decision to basically distract everyone while England could get its resources together. That's right. And the policy of negotiations to delay alliances and to offer the marriage and then change the policies and change the demands. Oh, we want Calais. No, you can't have Calais. Well, let the Duke practice his Catholic religion in private. No, he'll have to come to the Protestant services. These kinds of things were going on behind the scenes. Finally, in 82, it became clear that the Queen was not going to marry Alenton, and he still refused to leave England. Finally, Lester escorted him to the Low Countries. Now, the Queen paid him handsomely for his willingness to be engaged in these negotiations. He ended up with somewhere over 300,000 pounds in contributions from the English court for his military campaigns against the Spanish and the Low Countries. But he was really an embarrassment. He was not a great military leader. And he attempted to ransack Antwerp, and the French fury was unleashed, which uh, backfired. And he ended up running with his tail between the legs back to France and died at the ripe old age of 29, still madly in love with the Queen and exchanging these passionate letters that record this intense melodramatic romance in which the Queen played him like a puppet but used it to basically negotiate an extra 10 years of time, during which time England became far more capable uh, as a naval power and enriched itself sufficiently that it could withstand the attack of Spain. So this was political theater. It was a farcical political theater. The Queen knew it. Nobody else was quite in on the joke until the very end when it became clear that she would not marry him. Incredible and an interesting way in which being a female leader at the time was really used as an asset. You can't imagine a king delaying a marriage for 12 years and trying to mystify everyone as to the state of his heart, using that as a military strategy. Excellent point. So Elizabeth had this lengthy and fairly bizarre courtship with a French prince, which she basically used to retain England's independence. Now, I gather that there's some kind of a link between this story and A Midsummer Night's Dream. So let's take a look at that. And first, will you give us a little background on the play? Well, now, A Midsummer Night's Dream basically is Shakespeare's most original plot. It really has no primary source, unlike almost all his other plays. Those Labor's Lost Thing, another play that doesn't have one clear central source. But it incorporates elements from three of John Lilly's plays. It incorporates material from Edmund Spencer's work and from Robert Greene's work. It also incorporates elements that come directly out of Ovid's metamorphoses, including the whole Pyramus and Thisbe story, which is what the Rude Mechanicals act out. Also, there's Senecan influence, there's Plutarchan influence, 
So truly this play is the most richly self-consciously literate mosaic of classical and contemporary Renaissance sources, just about of any other play in the canon. And so it has that quality of interweaving of motifs from various genres. And you have basically three plots. The primary plot of the Duke and Hippolytus' wedding. Then you have the two young couples that are all lost out in the woods and being intoxicated by the love potion and the love confusions that occurs. And then you have the third plot of the rude mechanicals who are gathering to produce a play that will be performed as part of the court celebration of the marriage of the Duke and the Hippolyta, the Queen of the Amazons. As regards the concerns we have with the French marriage negotiations and crisis and the relationship of Elizabeth and Alenson, it is primarily the relationship between Titania, the Queen of the Fairies, and Bottom. Bottom says he could play Hercules rarely or a part to pair a cat in and act one. He's just saying in his own bombastic way that he's a Herculean character, which he truly is. I mean, he wants to stage manage to write the script, to play all the roles, and he upstages everybody virtually on the stage. So he's playing a Herculean role. He states it very clearly at the beginning. Well, why Hercules is important is that that is the birth name of the Duke of Alençon. His birth name is Hercule de Valois, Hercules Valois. But he was petite. He was a little guy. And so when he was christened, he received the name Francois, Francis. His eldest brother, Francis, had passed on, and so he was given Francis's name. So there's some confusion over his name, but he technically is known as Francois Hercule de Valois, the Duc d'Alençon, also the Duc d'Anjou. He became the Duc d'Anjou toward the end of his life when his older brother became King Henry III. And his relationship with Titania, when he's got the ass's head on, that suggests the same relationship that Hercules had with Queen Ampere in the Hercules stories, where he was a slave of the queen, and he had to put on women's clothing, and he was served by her handmaidens, and he had to tell stories. And the scene with Bottom and Titania very much seems like Hercules and Ampere. Interesting. So we've got an identification between Bottom and Queen Elizabeth's French suitor, the Duke of Alençon, based on the Herculean nature of the character. What else? So the Duke of France, who was next in line for the crown, was called Monsieur. That was his appellation. And at the English court, he was called Monsieur. That was the standard way of referring to the Duke of Alençon. So when I say Monsieur, that's what I mean. He negotiated the Peace of Monsieur in 1576. And when he finally left England at the end of the negotiations, after everything had failed, Elizabeth wrote a beautiful, long poem called To Monsieur. That's a long, deeply ambivalent poem about her feelings toward him, being drawn toward him and yet having to pull back. It is the most ambivalent poem I have ever read. So Bottom uses the word Monsieur, 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 Monsieur about a dozen times in about 30 lines when he's ordering the fairies around to get him the honey bags. Now, the honey bags are standing for those money bags that the queen was providing the duke. 300,000 pounds, that would be billions of dollars in today's exchange. I mean, the Earl of Oxford in his lifetime got 18,000 pounds from the Queen in his entire lifetime, whereas Alenson got over 300,000 for his military campaign. So she really, really was giving him the money bags. Well, let's hear that scene. This is Act 4, Scene 1, and it's from a British TV production with Helen Mirren as Titania and Brian Glover as Bottom. And here we've got Bottom lounging around with Titania on her bed. 
bottom who now has the head of an ass, which is apparently quite itchy. That's the main focus of the scene. And they're attended by Titania's fairies. Where's Peas Blossom? Ready. Scratch my head, Peas Blossom. Come, sit thee down upon this flowery bed while I thy amiable cheeks do coy. <laughs> and stick musk roses in thy sleek, smooth head. And kiss thy fair, large ears. Oh, my gentle joy. Where's Monsie with cobweb? Ready. Oh, Monsie with cobweb. Good Monsie, we'll get your weapons in your hand and kill me a red-hipped humblebee on the top of a thistle. And good Monsie, we bring me the honey bag. Don't fret yourself too much in the action, Monsie, And good Monsie, have a care the honey bag break not. I'll be loath to have you overflown with a honey bag, senior. Where's Monsie with mustard seed? Ready. Give me a knife, Monsie with mustard seed. I pray you leave your curtsy, good Monsie. What's your will? Oh, nothing good, Monsie, but to help cavalierly cobweb to scratch. <laughs> oh. I think he needs a flea collar, but more to the point, that's a lot of messieurs. And that word choice doesn't seem to be motivated by anything that's in the story. You know, I had a hard time finding this clip with those lines intact. In a lot of film versions, these lines are either reworked or totally omitted, which gives the suggestion that they're inessential or even kind of cryptic, lending some support to this idea that they are a joke that we're not in on. Now, are there any more hints in the play that suggest that we're talking about the Duke of Alençon? One of the most interesting allusions that tie the Duke of Alençon to Bottom is Bottom talks to Peter Quince about what kind of beard he should wear. And he said, your French crown-colored beard, your perfect yellow was his line, which is kind of a cowardly commentary on the French. And then there's another reference to going beardless. Well, the Duke of Alençon had smallpox, and he had a pockmarked face, like Elizabeth, who also had smallpox that escaped the scarification. In any case, he had some scars and deep pockmarks on his face. And actually, the depth of those pockmarks were specified in those marital negotiations. There was a deep concern for that. Well, since he was 16 years old when the negotiations began, he barely had a beard at all. And there were letters that went back and forth between his mother and the French ambassadors and the English ambassadors and even Lord Burley, in which they comment on the fact that he's finally now growing a beard. And Francis Flute says he doesn't want to play Disney because he's finally growing a beard. Francis Flute, named for Francois Hercule de Valois. So in fact, for Francis Flute to play Thisbe and Bottom to play Pyramus, you have Alençon making love to himself in this narcissistic story. It's very amusing when you see what Shakespeare has done by introducing these names in, in the curious way he does. And I mentioned earlier about the love potions. When Oberon tells Puck how he's going to put the love potions in Titania's eyes, he says, when she wakes her up, she's going to fall in love with the first thing she sees. And he rattles off a bunch of the names of various creatures, including lions and bears and all that. And then he mentions a busy ape or a meddling monkey. Now, Jean Simier, Simeon, Simier, was noted to be Elizabeth's monkey, her ape. That was her nickname for Simier, the guy that had the love potion. And Alanson himself was called her Granui, her frog, but his brother referred to him as his little monkey. So he didn't have a couple little monkeys seducing the queen, antagonizing the court immensely. 
And here's Oberon dropping love potion drops and Titania's eyes and talking about how she'll fall in love with the ape and the monkey. I think the associations are marvelous. Finally, you have nomenclature. Now, Shakespeare's nomenclature, the names of his characters, are always meaningful. And for the mechanicals, I think we could really point to that as being relevant. We mentioned Bottom and Francis Flute. How about Peter Quince, who's really the man who manages the script? He is the producer of the show, the director of the show, along with Bottom, co-director, so to speak. In any case, Peter Quince is named after De Quince, Q-U-I-N-C with an accent at E, exactly the same spelling. De Quince was a French ambassador that came to England in 1578 and was famously offended by the Earl of Oxford, who refused to dance for him. The Queen had asked Oxford to dance with the French delegation, Alençon's delegation. And then you have one of the other mechanicals, Snout, who's probably named for Dubex, B-E-X, meaning of the nose. So Snout, Dubex, Peter Quince, Kenze, Francis Flute, Francois de Valois. In addition, Robin Starvelings was playing Moonshine, as Robin, the Earl of Leicester. So I think that those names are very meaningful and that those at court who were familiar with these characters when it was first produced in the 1590s must have had an hysterical laugh at all these characters, meaning that escapes a modern audience must have had this historical background. Well, that's fascinating to consider. And even though the plays are surely intended to be timeless, I guess it is possible that they were written with a very specific contemporary audience in mind. So A Midsummer Night's Dream, in addition to being this beloved play that everyone can enjoy on many levels, could be almost like a comedy sketch for anyone familiar with the details of the marriage negotiations. Right. Well, before we move on, I want to recap the several points of correspondence between Bottom and the Duke of Alençon. We've got Bottom's pretty pointless overuse of Alençon's title, Monsieur. There are those honey bags of which Bottom speaks so tenderly. And a reference to the beard he might wear being, among other hues, French crown-colored. And the Hercules references. And then how members of the French delegation that negotiated on behalf of the marriage seem to be showing up among the rude mechanicals. So there's Peter Quince for Ambassador de Cancay. Snout the Tinker might be representing Dubex. Francis Flute, perhaps another representation of Alençon himself as Francois Hercule Valois. That's right. And then this is only what scholars have been able to come up with 400 years later. If these correspondences are on the mark, you wonder what other references might be buried in here. For one thing, there's still Snug the Joiner, one of the rude mechanicals still to be accounted for. Now, you mentioned that Robin Starveling, another of the rude mechanicals, may represent the Earl of Leicester. So why might he be included in this group? So I believe Robin Starveling is a stand-in for Robin, the Earl of Leicester, who was the most put out by Simeon Alençon, who had tried to marry her just a few years earlier and she had refused, who was very bound to her throughout his lifetime, but who was basically starving, as Robin Starveling might be. And of course, he plays the moon. And so it's very appropriate that this Robin character shows up in a Midsummer Night's Dream among the rude mechanicals, because really this was the right after the failure of his suit for her hand, and he was the one who was most threatened by these negotiations. So he's kind of lumped in there with the other failed French suitors, in a way. 
That's right. Now we've looked at how the character of Bottom has these points of reference with the Duke of Alençon. And in the play, of course, Bottom is transformed into having the head of an ass. And because of the love potion, the Queen of the Fairies falls madly in love with him. So if this piece of the play parodies the courtship, looks like Titania would be standing in for Queen Elizabeth. So can you tell us how Queen Elizabeth may be showing up in A Midsummer Night's Dream? Well, you know, you have very clear references. Titania, of course, in the Ovid's Metamorphosis, is associated with Diana. She's a stand-in for Diana. She's another name for Diana. And, of course, Diana was who the queen was identified with. And in Spencer's fairy queen, she is identified as Delphibe and Astrea. She was associated with all these goddess-like characters. Titania, as queen of the fairies, would be closely identified simply because of that. But there's a very interesting, significant illusion in here that may be quite relevant in this regard. Because when Elizabeth announced that she was definitely going to marry the Duke, she kissed him in public, she exchanged rings with him right in front of the Earl of Leicester. That night, the Earl of Leicester and Christopher Hatton hired, they paid the maids of the bedchamber to cry all night long. They cried, and Elizabeth could not sleep that night. And the next day, she returned the ring to the Duke. Okay, so so in the play, Titania says, "The moon, methinks, looks at the watery eye." And when she cries, everybody cries. Everyone around her, all her attendants, have to cry also. And the love potion. No other author actually has mentioned that. Taylor doesn't mention it in her books. Even Turner Clark missed that. But it's clear that uh, Sidney made these love potions. The queen reportedly looked 15 years younger. It was obviously working. She would rush to the bedchamber with Alison unchaperoned in the morning and spend the whole day with him. Let's just say it was a turnout for the queen, and she was totally enchanted by both Alison and Sidney to the great discomfort of all her ministers, including those who supported the Alison match because of her outrageous behavior. Mary, Queen of Scots, accused her of having an affair with both Valentine and Simier. Of course, she accused her also of having affairs with Oxford, Hatton, and Leicester. So, you know. Well, that's quite an impressive list. Of course, Mary, Queen of Scots herself was accused of a thing or two in her day. So maybe it just goes with the territory. Anyway, it sounds like there's some pretty clear clues linking Elizabeth to Titania. But again, going back to critical texts on the play, it's not a connection that's frequently made though the queen is often linked to another reference in the play, the imperial votress figure, who doesn't actually appear as a character, but is just made mention of. Can you talk more about this? Sure. So many scholars have agreed that when Oberon, early on, when he's getting the purple flower that has Cupid's arrow shot through it, he talks about the imperial votress throned by the West. And it is probably the one allusion that all scholars universally agree to was an allusion to Queen Elizabeth. The poet was tipping his hat to Elizabeth in this regard as the chaste imperial votress who would remain so her whole life. Okay, so that's the one accepted reference. I want to talk more about that in a bit, about why the imperial votress is universally accepted as a nod to Elizabeth but why the identification with Titania might be considered controversial. But first, let's touch on dating for this play. The events that we've been talking about, the courtship, have been in the 1570s and early 1580s, but the general consensus is that this play was written in the early 1590s. What can you tell us about the circumstances in which A Midsummer Night's Dream was written or first performed? 
Now, Mitzvah was probably an epithalamian, that is to say, a play performed for a courtly wedding. And many scholars have identified this as a distinct possibility. And over the last hundred years, a number of weddings in the early 1590s have been suggested as possible models for this. Although we don't know for sure if it was performed at any of these weddings. It just seems that way. The character Puck is named for a Puck in Spencer's Epithalamian. Epithalamian is a poem for a wedding, dedication for the wedding. Thomas Hedge was one of Elizabeth's primary counselors and a negotiator in some of these Allentown affairs. His marriage to the widow Countess of Southampton, Mary Brown, in 1594, is probably the most probable scene of the first production, although many people would also consider the marriage of the Earl of Oxford's daughter, Elizabeth Vere, to William Stanley, who would eventually become the Earl of Derby, to be the other possibility. Elizabeth Vere stands in very well for Hermia in this play because she was engaged to several other people, including Henry Rosely, the third Earl of Southampton, who had to pay a fine of 5,000 pounds to not marry the Earl of Oxford's daughter. And then eventually she was married to William Stanley, but there's another duke, another earl in consideration. So she fits rather well with the role of Hermia as another option for an allegorical context that might be an Oxfordian approach to why this play and why at that time. Interesting. So this play almost certainly originated as wedding entertainment, whether for the Earl of Oxford's daughter, looking back lightly at her courtship traumas, or for Thomas Hennage, who had been involved in the colorful Elizabeth and Allenson negotiations, or some other court wedding. It's funny that in the play, when Theseus chooses Pyramus and Thisbe as what they are going to watch, Theseus basically says that satire is inappropriate as a wedding entertainment, which makes it even funnier if there is that satirical layer to A Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, we've talked now about how this real-life soap opera of a courtship may be referred to allegorically in the play. Now, for the sake of comparison, I'd like to look next at some other allegories of the time period, and preferably some works that are widely understood to be allegorical. To start with, would you tell us a little more about allegory in general, and how it was typically used in Elizabethan England? Sure. Now, allegory comes from a Greek word, agora, which means to speak or proclaim. And it's the kind of speech that implies something other than what you're seeing. Therefore, there's a symbolic narrative involved, a figurative treatment of one subject in the guise of another. And this would be commonly used in the court, and really all throughout the 16th century, the court masks were allegorical. The royals were treated with great respect this way. Queen Elizabeth, of course, was identified with Diana by a number of poets, and so this is one way of commenting on the a political situation or your relationship with the queen in ways that were not direct. The direct approach would not work. You had to ask indirectly, and Queen Elizabeth was known for her particular insightful appreciation and interpretive capabilities when it came to allegories. William Cecil, her prime minister, said as much. And apparently, uh, another scholar said that allegorical lockpicking was a courtly pastime amounting to a disease. So they were obsessed with this symbolic representation. Now, allegories can be religious, but in these contexts, we're talking about political allegory that it refers to characters who are at play in the court and in the power structure around Elizabeth. 
Now, traditional scholars do not feel comfortable looking at these issues in the first place to make Queen Elizabeth look rather farcical in falling in love with a monstrous character like Bottom with the ass's head would have not been approved by the stationers or the rebels masters because it would have been too much of an insult to the queen had it been obvious to them what the allegorical context is. So Shakespeare criticism usually does not include these kinds of interpretive contexts. Most scholars will acknowledge that Lord Burley is being parodied as Polonius in Hamlet, but they don't go very far in discussing particulars of what was going on at court. Jonathan Bate in Shakespeare and Ovid, and I'm going to read you a quote from this book because I think it's rather important to understand how radical this idea is. He says, Shakespeare cannot afford to license the interpretation of this scene with Titanian bottom as an image of the queen and a perverse encounter which upsets both the natural and social order. If such an interpretation were at all prominent, the master of the rebels would not have licensed the play. By identifying the queen with the imperial votress, Shakespeare denies the transgressive identification of her with Titania. So there is a natural discomfort at thinking Shakespeare could have written something that would be so potentially inflammatory. As a commoner, this would have been a big problem. And I think this is why authorship research is interesting because the Earl of Oxford being a ranking member of the court and so-called insider would have had a freer pen, particularly if it was published anonymously or pseudonymously, in representing these kinds of courtly relationships. With Elizabeth, during the early period of her being on the crown, the allegories were to encourage her to get married. At one mask at Gray's Inn, there's a debate between Diana and another goddess, Juno. Juno representing marriage, and Juno triumphs over Diana. And Elizabeth is quoted as turning to the French ambassador and saying, this is all against me. That is to say, she was holding out against a marriage arrangement at that time. Then you have a turn in the late 1570s away from encouraging the queen to marry. And perhaps the most famous one of these was the Kenilworth celebrations in 1575 when the Earl of Leicester made it very obvious that he was proposing marriage to her through this magnificent festival at Kenilworth. And there's an illusion in Midsummer Night's Dream that probably reflects directly on the Kenilworth festivities regarding Cupid and the arrow that misses the fair vessel thrown by the West and lands on the love and idleness flag and becomes the source of the love potions. So there's even an allusion in Midsummer Night's Dream toward that image that many scholars have reflected on. So in terms of the queen getting married, the early period, that was what was being represented. Then, because of the factions that opposed the Alençon match in the late 1570s, you find a complete switch in the allegorical context in which now the virgin queen, Diana, is emphasized. And Philip Sidney writes several pieces on this, The Fortress of Perfect Beauty and The Four Foster Children of Desire, that were highly symbolic representations of the chaste and unattainable queen. So you have a whole shift in the iconography of the queen being no longer one who is being encouraged to be married, but one who is encouraged to maintain her chastity and her purity as the great virgin leader of the Protestant world. Fascinating how the virgin queen iconography was in a way an outgrowth of the division over this courtship. And so interesting that Elizabeth actually expected to find herself represented on stage in these courtly dramas. Now, 
Do the allegorical references in A Midsummer Night's Dream bear any resemblance to other more obviously allegorical works of the time? Well, Miriam Taylor's work on Bottom Dial Art Transit, a political allegory in Midsummer Night's Dream, probably is the best source for this, and it is still available out there on Zubal Books. But she makes the point that in Spencer's Mother Hubbard's Tale, which was probably written about 1580, so about 15 years or so before Midsummer Night's Dream was probably first performed, it is an allegory in which the fox is a stand-in for Lord Burley. The monkey in this story, in this fable, is a stand-in for Elizabeth Sange, ape her monkey, which is Simier, Alençon's representative, and the lion would be a symbol of the queen herself. And the lion is put into a deep sleep with a magical herb, kind of like the love and idleness. And then the monkey and the fox take over the kingdom. This is Spencer's way of criticizing the Alençon match at the critical time when the greatest fear was that she would marry the Frenchman and then that the Catholics would then be an ascendant power in England and undermine the Protestant cause. Sappho and Fayo is a John Lilly play, and several editors see Sappho and Fayo as being definitely allegorical. It's a romance in which Queen Sappho, who is the most beautiful creature in the world, is struck by a Cupid's arrow and falls in love with the boatman Fayo. And it's about the difficulties in their romance. And Fayo goes off at the very end to seek his fortune in Sicily. And he's drawn away from Sappho. An antidote is given. And so he wakes up and then he goes and pursues his life, knowing it's quite ridiculous for a queen to be in love with a lowly boatman. This play was first produced one month after the departure of Alençon, finally for the Netherlands in 1582. So Sappho and Fayo is very topical of that, and two of Lily's finest editors, Tucker Brook and Warwick Bond, make it very clear, and that argument is summarized nicely in Taylor's book, that uh, is allegorical. Spencer's, you know, of course, this fairy queen had allegorical context. Belphoebe is well recognized as a representative of Queen Elizabeth, and he has a character in the second book, a braggadocio, and braggadocio, of course, is the Duke of Alençon, who was a bit of a braggart. He was definitely a troublemaker and not a serious contender for the throne. And so I think there are a number of characters that are represented this way. Certainly, many editors do believe that Lily's play Endymion, which is considered a source for Midsummer Night's Dream, that the Cynthia character in there, of course, Cynthia is associated with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was called Cynthia, is a stand-in for the queen. So a number of these plays that are actual sources for a Midsummer Night's Dream also deal allegorically with the Alençon-Elizabeth match and the difficulties around that, the political crisis that was being precipitated by the seriousness of the negotiations and yet the farcical nature of the romance itself. Seems like irresistible subject matter. I'm amazed how many elements of A Midsummer Night's Dream were taken from these allegorical works, many of which are apparently treating this very topic of the French marriage. So what is the difference then between the possible allegory we've been looking at in A Midsummer Night's Dream and these other works? Why, for example, do traditional scholars pour through the historical record to try and assign courtly persons to all the various parts of, say, the Fairy Queen or Endymion? But this work of Shakespeare's, with so many common elements, is somehow off-limits. Well, The Fairy Queen is obviously written as an allegorical extended poem, and it has all the beautiful classical allusions in it, and it's built upon an allegorical context. So it's also highly complementary of the Queen, as are Lily's plays that refer to Sappho or Cynthia, 
as stand-ins for Queen Elizabeth. These are highly complementary treatment. Unlike A Midsummer Night's Dream, where Titania is not complimented by her judgment as to who is worthy of her love. <laughs> you know? So it's a satire, it's a farce, as unlike the romances that were written by the earlier playwrights. So I think for that particular question about Alanson and the Queen, it's particularly sensitive to try to suggest that Shakespeare as a commoner would have been capable of uh, getting away with writing that kind of transgressive discourse uh, commenting on the queen. So as long as you were saying complimentary things that were favorable and romantically based, I think you were safe. If you wrote directly, critically, you were very unsafe. And the classic example of that, of course, would be John Stubbs' pamphlet, The Gaping Gulf, that accused Alan of all sorts of terrible things and directly urged the queen not to marry him and to, you know, the great threat of who he was and the fact that he might be diseased, among other things. A lot of very scandalous things were written in that pamphlet. And, of course, he and the printer lost their right hands for writing that kind of stuff. You did not get away with that kind of directive uh, toward the queen. And then, of course, Philip Sidney wrote the queen a letter, a personal letter, criticizing Alan to the queen. He was sent away from court and basically banished from court for a period of time. So this is the way that direct approaches would be confronted, particularly if they're critical, they would not be treated very well. Well, I think treating the queen as Titania is somewhat critical. I mean, that's a, you're creating a farce, a satire out of what was at one time a very serious negotiation. And I think the queen stood to lose a face if it were actually known that she was being portrayed as Titania. So I think it was a risky thing. And I don't think most scholars would acknowledge that Shakespeare was up to that. Now, in the other plays that Alanson is depicted in, he's depicted rather critically. Uh, in Henry VI, Part One, he's depicted as a character that uh, is cowardly. He won't fight Lord Talbot, who issues a challenge. He speaks very critically of, of the British. He is accused by Joan of Arc of impregnating her. So he's treated rather rather negatively in the one history play that, in which he appears as an actual character. And just to clarify, that would be his forebearer. Yes. Yes. But probably still a nod to the current title holder? It was clearly clearly a nod to the real one. That, that's right. It would be an allegorical treatment simply because it's the same name, the same position that was taken. And the Duke of Allenstein would have been the king's brother in, in most situations like this. So, But right, you're right. That was a historical. It was a couple hundred years earlier. So, and then, of course, he's alluded to rather peripherally in Love's Labor's Lost. Barone and Rosalind have met previously and danced at the Duke of Alençon's, and there's, a, there's one other reference to him. But his birth name was Hercules, and the character, Don Armado's assistant, Moth, plays Hercules in the Mask of the Nine Worthies at the very end. Of course, Hercules is not supposed to be in among the Nine Worthies. He is not one of those characters historically. So he's inserted, and then the fact that he's played by Moth is significant because the first person to bring the proposal to England that the Duke of Alençon should marry Queen Elizabeth was Le Mont de Penelon, the name of that one, Moth, M-O-T-H, but it's pronounced Mo as in M-O-T-E almost. So I think that he's alluded to there in a very comic way also. Uh, some editors would say also that, in as you like, at the very beginning, Rosaline encourages Orlando to win in the wrestling match 
by saying he should be as swift as Hercules. And after he wins the match, she presents him with a chain, which was famously presented to Simier by the Queen. So there are a number of other soft allusions to the Duke in various other plays, possibly. But it's really only in A Midsummer Night's Dream that he gets the full treatment. Now, do we know whether Queen Elizabeth actually saw this play? There is no evidence that she ever saw this play, despite the traditional myths around Shakespeare and Elizabeth. Now, this is 10 years after, almost 10 years after the Earl of Leicester had died. And I think the Queen would have accepted that this was humorous, but she certainly might have been a little bit sensitive about that point, because I think she really was in love with Leicester as well. So the first love of her life, the Earl of Leicester, and the last love of her life, the Duke of Alençon, are both captured in this wonderful drama. So while the relationship was certainly political theater, you think that Elizabeth felt some genuine affection for Alençon? Well, it's very interesting. When he died in 1584, she grieved publicly. She wore black for six months. She acted like a true widow. She allegedly admired him more than any other man. She wore black for six months? At that point, there was no reason to bother fooling anyone. Right. It's very hard to know what to make of it all. Well, let's look now at the authorship implications of all of this. Do you think that William from Stratford-upon-Avon could have had access to some of these negotiation details? I wonder how well-known the specifics were. I think it would be highly unlikely. I think you're talking in the late 1570s. Will was born in 1564, so he would have been in his teenage years still living in Stratford. I think it's highly improbable that the specific allusions and nomenclature would have been understood by a person coming from outside that sphere 15 years later. So I would say the improbabilities are great because of the details of the allegorical, illusional matrix. And he might have gotten a hold of some of the Spencer publication in the early 1590s. Certainly, Fairy Queen was available then, and Mother Hubbard's Tale was published in 1580. So he could certainly have read and been familiar with some of the other literature. But the details that are in Midsummer Night's Dream that are not in those other allegorical plays suggest not only somebody who was inside during those episodes and was emotionally invested, it somehow and what was going on, but also has the status to be that transgressive, to be that outrageously critical in an amusing farcical way of the Queen and a French Duke. You did not write a play about a living monarch. The risk that the playwright is taking in writing that play, among those who would have recognized the allegorical context, it would have been a great risk. And, you know, Ben Johnson was probably put in jail for much less of an offense. Chapman, Kidd, others, they were all jailed at various times. You had to be careful as a playwright to place your actual name on a document that had political implications could be very hazardous. Why would this play have been allowed to be acted publicly and published during the Queen's lifetime? Well, I think it was designed to be performed at court. We don't have any record of it being performed at the Globe Theater, so it might have had a very limited production history early on, since we don't know when it was performed or where. Though, doesn't the first published edition from 1600 say that it was publicly acted? So, publicly acted... That wouldn't be at court. No, that would have been in the public theaters. And uh, sometimes those statements can be believed, and sometimes they're misleading. They did the same thing for Troilus and Cressida as publicly reformed by the Lord Chamberlain, and then in the, in the same 
Quarto edition, they changed the frontis page, and they said, as never before performed uh, before audiences. So that may or may not be a reliable reference, but we can say that probably was performed. Well, it's very amusing, and it's very distracting, and I think except for the court insiders who were really aware of this little melodrama that had transpired at court in the period leading up to the war with Spain, and Alanson, of course, died in 1584, so now you're talking a decade after his passing, I think he got away with it. Now, it's done rather subtly, and for hundreds of years, no one has actually pulled this together. So I think whoever cleverly crafted this, it was sufficiently subtle and obscure so that it would take historians 300 years, 400 years later, detailed analyses to begin to debulk it so that you could see, oh, that's where the love potion came from. It came from the Sinier story. Oh, that's where the, the monsieur comes from. It comes from the duke himself or the names of the characters. So the references may have just gone unnoticed. Now, you think there's a good possibility that the works of Shakespeare were written by Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. So what about this play, Beyond These Court Connections, suggests Edward de Vere as the author? Well, I think the richness of the mosaic of literary sources, the classical sources, there are Seneca influences, there's obviously Plutarchan influences, but they're pretty typical of some of Shakespeare's greatest works. The Earl of Oxford was very familiar with this, and of course the story of Pyramus and Thisbe is recounted in, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, which was translated from the Latin into English by Arthur Golding in 1567 when he and the teenager Earl of Oxford were living at Cecil House. So he was present during the time in which the most important work uh, besides the Bible as a Shakespeare source, Ovid's Metamorphoses, was being translated by his maternal uncle. Many people would argue that the Earl of Oxford is probably very much involved in the translation project, and I suspect he was. And it's interesting to me that many scholars have pointed out that Shakespeare not only knew the English translation of Ovid, but had primary knowledge of the original Latin translation because of some unique qualities and usages of the Latin, including the name Titania. The name that he chose, Titania, for the Queen of the Fairies, comes from the Latin original of Ovid's Metamorphoses, not from the English translation. Now, we've mentioned John Lilly and his plays as sources. Certainly, his play... Midas. Midas gains uh, some ass's ears when he misjudges that Apollo is a better musician than Pan, and so he has to go around with ass's ears on, kind of a early lead into what will become Bottom's asinine face. And you've got his other plays that were obviously sources for Shakespeare, and those would include Sappho and Thea, which we've mentioned, Endymion, Galatea, and Campasti, all these plays were written and performed at court by the Earl of Oxford's boys. And that would be a theater troupe? Yes. They had the contract at Blackfriars. Oxford held the contract there in the early 1580s, and John Lilly managed Oxford's boys, which were formerly the children of Paul's, and they performed plays at court, including Campaspe, Sappho, and Phaeo, and Galatea, and Endymion. So the primary source of much of Shakespeare's artistry in Midsummer's Dream, John Lilly, was working as Oxford's secretary from 1580 on for a number of years. They worked together. So the primary Renaissance literary source for Midsummer's Dream was written by the Earl of Oxford's secretary. 
And theater collaborator, it sounds like. And theater collaborator, that's right. Theater manager for him. So they were at a very close relationship during that time, that critical time, right when the whole Allentown affair was going on. So I think that is perhaps the most compelling literary connection between the Earl of Oxford and the sources of both the allegorical context and the artistic context that you find in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I think that the Earl of Oxford clearly had met the Duke of Alençon. He knew he had a personal connection to him. He met him at the coronation of Henry III in France. He no doubt encountered him uh, at court, and he certainly encountered his ambassadors at court. So I think that the fact that he had a personal relationship with the Duke of Alençon, that his father-in-law, William Cecil, Lord Burley, was the primary sponsor for the Duke of Alençon's suit for Elizabeth's hand. So I see this as a means of of his writing an amusing, satiric commentary on that. So in your view, there's the possibility that this satirical allegory reflects the author's actual experience of knowing Alan's son and seeing these marriage negotiations up close as an interested party. This gives a radically different idea of Shakespeare's perspective and also how his experiences may have influenced his work. Now, before we wrap up, you are going to give us a quick look at Love's Labor's Lost and Measure for Measure, which are two other plays with references to the French court in the 1580s. So how do these other plays relate to what we've learned here today? So Malinson's older brother, Henry III, who was a very ardent Catholic, was a character allegorized as the Duke in Measure for Measure. Henry III used to go off on retreats to monasteries and put on a monk's outfit just like the Duke does. And while he left in 1583 on one of these monastic retreats, he put a guy named Anjouste in control of Paris. Anjouste, Angelo in Measure for Measure, was an ardent Puritan, and he invoked an old law to accuse a man named Claude Tonart of impregnating a young woman and sending them to die the very exact same scene you have at the beginning of Measure for Measure. And Adam Lafont, the great French scholar, is the one that uncovered all this data. A Love's Labor's Lost, it's about Henry Navarre, the other man in this trinity of French dukes and kings, who's over to do because the princess of France goes on her delegation to Navarre to see the king of Navarre. Well, this is clearly an allusion to several delegations that Marguerite de Valois went to see Henry to discuss the fate of Aquitaine, which is exactly this is in the Shakespeare's play, Love's Labor's Lost. So you have absolute parallels. And Marguerite de Valois, the princess of France, was known to travel with a group of very, very exciting women, l'escadron volant in French, meaning the flying squadron. This was a group of women that were known for their wit and their wildness, and exactly the kind of characters you see in Love's Life is Lost. And of course, Dumaine, Baron, Longueville, those are the lords of Shakespeare's plays. Those names were taken from associations with Henry Navarre. They were either allied to him or actual generals in his army. So this is very, very interesting how all these relationships tie together. So you really have to know quite a bit about the history of the French court to appreciate three of Shakespeare's comedies. And none are really painted quite so clearly as a political allegory as A Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, thank you so much, Earl. This has been incredibly interesting. I really enjoyed getting such a close look at courtly drama during Queen Elizabeth's reign. 
guess I'm amazed that a court writer like Philip Sidney could get away with presenting a highly polemic drama right in front of the Queen and in front of 400 French ambassadors. That's quite a lot of latitude given to the court writers when, if you were an ordinary person, you would be in fear for your life. And I was also quite surprised by the extent to which courtly drama was not confined to the stage. The whole episode of Elizabeth and Ellenson, there's a real mingling of statecraft and stagecraft. I loved seeing how Elizabeth would use the very same theatrics that worked so well on the international level to manipulate the people closest to her. And not just the same tactics sometimes, but even the very same incidents, like giving the ring to Alanson right in front of Robert Dudley. It was interesting, too, to see how political references that are flattering or neutral, like the imperial votress that we looked at, a reference like this is generally accepted by scholars as being intentional on the part of Shakespeare. But anything more pointed or critical is seemingly not taken very seriously, not because there's no merit to the idea, but mostly apparently because it's not clear how William from Stratford-upon-Avon could have gotten away with writing it. And finally, I just want to remark on how it seems that the story of this courtship showed up in so many other theatrical and literary works of the day, and especially in source works from its summer night's dream. And so really, no matter what you conclude about the possible allegorical references that we discussed today, it appears that there already exists a strong link between the French marriage crisis and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Thank you again. Well, excellent, Jennifer. I very much appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you and to your listeners and spreading the word on how in Shakespeare there are layers and textures that we're still discovering 400 years later, and they arise in our imagination almost like miracles that make you want to laugh when you actually perceive the pattern. So thank you so much, Jennifer. And thank you so much for listening. The Shakespeare Underground will be back soon with a new episode, and in future podcasts, we'll consider some other possible allegorical references in Shakespeare. There are some very interesting theories and discoveries that relate to other plays and other political situations of the Shakespeare age. Please visit our website at theshakespeareunderground.com. We've got some images of the Duke of Alençon, so you can kind of get a sense of what he looked like. And you can also read for yourself Elizabeth's poem to him on Monsieur's departure, which was written on his final leave-taking from England. You'll also find links to the books and articles that were referenced in today's talk. Thank you again, and see you soon.